Well, that was fun speaking to Nicola Elliott. He's the co-founder of Neom Organics. And I was an early adopter of their fabulous candles, the Happy Candle. I don't know if you remember that, but it's still in existence. And Nicola really made me think about the journey that us founders go on. We actually started our businesses roughly at the same time and was in publishing and not at the same place. But we have had a world that has sort of collided with each other and rubbed up against each other. And it was just brilliant to share those thoughts and lessons that we have both experienced. And what a wonderful woman she is. So open, so honest, and actually completely and utterly hilarious. I'd love you to listen to this and think of your business dream as a love affair as you climb Everest. Myself and Nicola talk about our walking shoes and um, it will all make sense as you listen. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table, and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe, who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Nicola. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I am really thrilled to be talking to you because I mentioned this to you when I asked you to join me, that your candle, your Neom candle, the happy candle, was the first sort of proper candle that I ever bought. And I then remember buying it absolutely for everybody because it was this beautiful thing that said happy. And we're going to talk about this, but Did it make you happy? That's the most important question. It really, truly did. It really, truly did. And I can't actually, we're going to get into all of this, but I can't believe how long you've been running, Neom. And um, and this is going back some time. And there's only a few of us female entrepreneurs out there that's been doing it for this long. But I wanted to ask you just to kick off. One of the many things I love about Neom is that the way that you've been sort of really open about the fact that not everyone can lead a purist lifestyle. And so Neon focuses on four areas of life that we can all relate to. So better sleep, less stress, mood boosting, more energy. Tell me about why you did this. And was it to do with this sort of overwhelm that us women can feel when we try and tackle those areas? 100%. God, I'm so impressed that you know that. Yeah. Did I send you a really, really good bio or did you just, have you just good stalking you for days (laughs) and writing, oh my goodness, yes, Uh, I know a lot about you. That's the best intro I've had for a long time. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so I think two questions, I suppose, in one there. I don't think that the majority of us are evangelists because I'm not an evangelist, so I can't get my head into the space of someone who is. 
look, we all want to do a little bit better than what we're doing. And I think where well-being is concerned, I always thought, wouldn't it be lovely to be one of those people who could get their heads together to get up and do yoga on a beach at six in the morning, could go on a retreat every summer on my own. And the reality was that I just can't. And so I think it always came from a place, Neon, that we were about well-being but that needed to be easily defined and we needed to not be such evangelists. And look, I love Goop as much as, much as the next person would love to look like Gwyneth, but we're just, we're much more about a real woman. And I suppose that's me, right? You know, as an entrepreneur, the best way that you can connect with your customer is by really understanding her. And clearly, Neom's grown and we service women who are 25 as much as women who are 65 and now husbands and Mm -hmm. children and men and people doing A-levels, etc. But there is one core mindset and it is more like me. It is kind of, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm losing. And so I think we're there to really help with those moments of well-being. And whilst I love that well-being is now a big thing, because that's good, right? Because it opens up the conversation and people take it seriously and people therefore hopefully are looking after themselves and we're... We're doing a good thing. I also think it's become so crowded and so cluttered and so hard to start that journey that actually mm. that's become an added complication. Sorry, lots of answers to your yeah, oh question my gosh, there, This is going to be a good yeah. conversation. Before I get into all of it and your startup journey, I want to go back to, and then I want to hear about what's happening right now. So we're going to take you almost through the ages of Neon. I want to go back to little Nicola because you were born in Leeds and you grew up there with your parents and your sister. And I read that you were a pony mad kid. Was it a happy upbringing, sort of mucking out the stables and in the rain? Did that make you happy? Yeah, I'm a pony mad middle-aged woman now. So my daughter's now into it. Thank God, because if she'd not been, I think I just would have been like, goodbye. So now I actually spend my weekends driving around in a horse box. It's funny, I live my life half between London and half Yorkshire. So when I'm in London, I'm running around like a mad person, working, going to meetings, seeing my friends and the children are with their dad. And then when I come back, it is literally me and her in a field with our horses <laughs> It's always been a really important part of my life, horses. I'm not not the best rider in the world, but we do a bit of everything. She's much better than me. And yeah, I think that antidote to that kind of crazy life is really important. And you find it in many different things, obviously. But for me, the sort of the basics of being with a horse and the women at the stables, it's a really nice contrast. Mm, I can imagine. And I can imagine when you're a kid and what you're giving to your daughter is, I read that you felt that it taught you a lot about responsibility. And I remember friends of mine being in that world and they had to muck out the horse and they had to go and do all these things and it didn't matter, rain, shine. Yeah. You've got a responsibility at a young age. Yeah, you have. And it's a real 360 responsibility, right? Because horse riding is kind of the sport that's got so many sports within it. So you're looking after the horse and you're sort of doing all the practical stuff, the mucking out, the cleaning of the tack, etc. Then you've kind of got this competitive side, this sort of training of the horse to get it better. Mm. Then you've got kind of this resilience element because you constantly, you know, you sort of take a step forward, take a step back. Then you've got the friendship 
element. Yes. And then you've got that real sort of grit, which is you've got to go out in the rain or it, the horse world is harsh. There's no self-love going on there, to be honest. And there's I think, no glamour. No, there's not. The horse women in, in North Yorkshire, if my daughter, you know, she's fallen off a horse and she's crying. There's no sympathy. It's, you know, get back on the horse, job done. Yeah. And so, look, there's a balance of that. Of course there is. But I, th- I think it's a great thing. And, you know, I think people always think horses are for the super privileged. My mum and dad, I mean, what a great parenting trick this was. They bought me a tiny knackered pony for £150. I know that because I went searching in my mum's pocket when it was my 12th birthday and saw price of pony on a little invoice slip. 150 quid. They used to drop me off and my sister, who in the 80s, I'm six, she's three. This is not a joke. From nine in the morning. I mean, now my mum's like, I'm just mortified. I was like, well, it was the 80s. Nine in the morning till five on a night. They'd go out for lunch, the two of them, pick us up half cut. Have So they had their weekends. So it was childcare. <laughs> it was parenting resilience. Everything for 150 quid. And they didn't pay for the ponies to be looked after because my dad, being the entrepreneur that he was, did a great deal where he said, well, if you can use the pony in a few lessons, can we have the livery for free? How unbelievable. I know. So how brilliant is that? And I love your parents' attitude to all of this. But then I also read that you have confessed to being quite a naughty child. And I actually love that. Not many people come on here saying that they've been a naughty child. Tell me how, what, what level of naughty awful. were you? The worst in the school by a country mile. <gasps> oh awful, gosh. awful, always at the headmistress's <laughs> office. <laughs> And always in trouble. And then, and also just medium level bright, like a bit above the average. You know, it was funny because I got invited back to my children's school to do a speech and I did it. And I don't know if they really liked this, even when I went back, but I did the title was In Praise of the Middle Child. And my whole thing was the children, I went to a very academic school, but a third of the children were on scholarships. It was a private school, but a third of the children were on scholarships. It was a great idea because it wasn't just the privileged. It was just, it was academically really bright kids. And so being middle of that, to be fair, was a, a pretty good place to be. But I, I did this speech in praise of the middle child. And I said, the kids who were doing brilliant and all went to Oxbridge were flying. They were fine. The kids who were really struggling had loads of help. The kids in the middle got really left, a bit like a middle child. And I always think Mm. about that when kids go to school because I was good at English, I was good at art, I was pretty crappy or middle of the road of everything else. And I think that just leaves you feeling a little bit depleted and a bit look at me. And so I think that might have fueled me being, I've got something, I think. And then, and I was really naughty. And it's funny, when... I went to a therapist like for the first time ever in my 30s when I started with awful anxiety. They said to me, I ticked all the boxes for like high functioning ADHD. And probably the fact that you were naughty when you were younger was the fact that you didn't understand boundaries at all. And I still find that quite hard. Mm. So I think it's been very helpful in my career because I'm I have this whole normal is boring thing, really pushing on. I think my standards of anything, whether it's a box for a candle or a how we do senior leadership team meetings or whatever, is quite high and forward, you know, pushing sort of forward and mm. always bringing the difference, which is very entrepreneurial. But I can see that as a child, those were things that probably were the things that got me into trouble. Into trouble and the lack yeah. of awareness at yeah. those points in time. Yeah. 
So you said your dad was entrepreneurial and maybe that's where the sort of entrepreneurial streak comes in that naughty streak. You know, I always think that people who push things make great entrepreneurs. Definitely. I read that when you received a job offer to be an editor of yeah. a glossy magazine, your dad said to you, if you take this job, you'll be working for someone else for the rest of your life. Um, was that the sort of air that you breathed when you were a child? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There was, it was really not, no matter what I'd have done, if I'd have worked for somebody else, it would have always been seen as not great. And I think even if I was, you know, working in the city on a seven-figure salary, I think that's because my dad was entrepreneurial and he was probably a little bit anti the system in that way. But I think also he's really sort of held control of your own life in the highest kind of order. And, And it's interesting, isn't it? My partner works in financial services and he, he was, we were discussing this the other day and he said his father was completely the opposite. I think, you know, yeah. we just thought, God, the ultimate is to work for a big company and do particularly well in that arena. Of course, that kind of filters down to you. You know, I thought my dad would have been so proud and I rang him and said, you know, I've been offered this editorship and actually it was a magazine that folded in the end. But, you know, I was still 26 and that was like way Very ahead of young. my... Peers, exactly. And so I thought he'd be like, wow, and the, you know, it was good money. And I don't know, there's all good fun things thrown into the job offer. And he just wasn't. So I think this is for good and for bad in life. I think when you're older, you have to reflect on that. It shows you, you know, you get shown one worldview. And of course, you think it's normal. And of course, you think it's right. But I remember also when I went to therapist for the first time, I said, oh, I had this perfect childhood. And she said, well, that's a red flag. I said, why? <laughs> And she said, because there's no perfect. And that was quite a thing. You know, that was quite a moment in my life was sort of to see that there are versions of good, (laughs) not perfect. There's versions of good, but there isn't one. And so we had a lovely childhood, but it was a, we lived in a small northern town with quite small northern thoughts in many ways. Mm -hmm. And again, partly that was lovely and partly that was something that wasn't going to suit me long term. And I think that's been part of the joy of my life and part of the struggle as well. You went on to study history of art at uni before you embarked on this journalism career and magazines such as InStyle and Glamour. And I remember being avid readers of these. What was that time like? Because you were, as you just said, in your early 20s, you building the successful career. You were associated with glamour and celebrities and travel. And I started my whole career when I was 18, 18 19 in publicist advertising agency. So I was in Baker Street and I then went to Condé Nast and you know, I remember. It's I didn't know quite... you were Condé Nast. I was a Condé Nast too. Oh, were you? My yeah. goodness, I I could only stomach it for a year because yeah. I just did not have the right shoes. Let's just face it. Oh, really? I was just not. I was not. I wasn't <laughs> built that way. And but I loved it. Absolutely, I was in sales yeah. and things. But it was a pretty intense experience when you're young sure. and yeah. you are rocketing through. And it, we feel quite similar in that way. Yeah. What was it like for you? Did you find that intensity? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just trying, mentally trying to figure out the things, the stories I can tell on camera and then thinking we must meet for a, a glass of wine so we can trade stories. So I suppose rewind. So I, my naughtiness got me to go, ended up in me having to go through clearing. So that was kind of a moment which I was like, oh my God, I ended up in an old poly. All my other friends were at Oxbridge. <laughs> I just used to go to sixth form 
honestly, tick my name in the box, go back to my boyfriend's house, just chill out for the day. I mean, awful. I just don't, don't even want my kids listening yeah, to this. Yeah, never, then, ever the kids listening to this No, they're podcast. not listening to no, this. They don't, no, no, no. So then I ended up in clearing and I ended up at an old poly on a course which was, you know, relatively interesting, but was literally the pick of the bottom of the barrel for me. It was horrendous. <laughs> But it was a good thing because I scared myself so much. Honestly, it was like, poor, that I needed to have that scare. And I always wanted to be a journalist. So, you know, had I've gone to another university, I would have done a journalism course. I obviously didn't get on any. So I thought the only way forward for me is to do as many work experience places as possible, sleeping on people's floors and getting together a bunch of references from people. So when I finally leave, I've tried to pull myself back from this hole I've got in. And that's what I did. I did, I think about 13 work placements. I used to stay on my cousin, I had older cousins, they had flats and used to stay on the sofas and the floors and work in these magazines. And I built up a whole sort of load of friends really in those three years when I was at uni. I mean, I couldn't do two weeks here and there because I had to then go and do a proper job where I earned money in the summer, obviously. But it was the best thing because at the end of this, I had all these great contacts. So my friends who then had finished on great courses from great university were sort of starting five steps behind me. So I do think everyone has to fall off their perch at some point in life. And I think it happens either at my stage or it might happen just as you're going into the job market or it might happen later on. If you're going to rise up, I think you sort of need a bit of a smack in the face. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Don't you think so? I couldn't agree more. Because you have to feel that hunger and that passion and that, oh, shit, I want this and what you're going to do or what you're prepared to do for it. And then that's what I felt when I ended up on in clearing. And I always felt I don't fit here, I don't belong here, I've got to get out, I've got to work harder. So I did get a job really quickly on a rubbish magazine, 12 grand a year. They didn't give me a chair. It was sit on the floor and lick (sighs) the stamps. But it was a job. (laughs) Anyway, I could spend ages talking about that, but you asked about that time in magazines. It was brilliant. And I quickly, it was the time when the celebrity was rising And I think that they quickly realised that my talent was, again, a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. So I was neither the best writer nor the great stylist. It was a bit like, what can she do? Here she is again, sort of in the middle, (laughs) with a great will. And she's a bit of a laugh. And she's a northerner, and oh my God, she'll push things through. But she's not really great at any of these things. So they said, oh, do you know what? Entertainment's rising. Let's put her on entertainment because we need some sort of rabid dog to get the celebrities on the cover. (laughs) The celebrities will sell. So we need someone who's sort of a salesperson, kind of knows what's cool, is quite good at trends. I'm quite good at seeing ahead and knowing that's going to be cool in six months or a year Mm -hmm. and putting together words and pictures and then kind of bringing a team together. I mean, it was the most itty-bitty CV in the world. But ultimately, I was aware when I did that, that that was the difference between the magazines really doing well. A great cover and those great cover lines to them. Not so I there was a great value in that sort of role and and it was brilliant I mean look I was kind of I finished doing it at 26 I think but I spent those early 20s I lived off canapes I had no cash I lived off canapes I was always on a plane to New York LA so many ridiculous celebrity stories but it quickly went from this is hilarious these are great stories for the children 
uh, all the grandchildren to being called up in the middle of the night by Mariah Carey's manicurist to say, if you don't change the manicurist, the whole thing's off and you'd worked on some project for three months there was definitely an end point to which your career could stomach Please that. tell me you've made that up it was actually the pedicurist are you oh my i see um, this is just this is where i have to just hold the table and just think it's just another mm. world isn't it and here yeah, we are two yeah. female founders talking the real stuff <laughs> yeah as if we have yes the, we know I the know. name of a pedicurist As you know, I'm passionate about celebrating small businesses and championing creativity within all of us. That's why I'm thrilled to be working with Adobe Express, who each week are handing over their ad break to a small business founder, shining a light on their own businesses and sharing how Adobe Express really is helping fuel their creativity. Hi, I'm Lindsay from Wood Paper Scissors. I work with my husband, Tony, creating personalised wooden gifts and homewares from our studio workshop on the Cornwall coast. Our range is inspired by the Hooger ethos of enjoying life's simple pleasures in comfort and cosiness. Every product in our range is made by us, in-house, from high-quality, locally, ethically sourced wood, meaning each and every order is made to love and last. We still make and sell all of these products today, but have continued to expand our range to include many more personalised creations to be cherished forever. It's my job to ensure that all the social channels are kept up to date. So when Holly and Co asked if we'd like to try the new Adobe Express app to help create our content, naturally, we jumped at the chance. And my gosh, it does not disappoint. It's like having a design team in your phone and everything works so intuitively within a few swipes, meaning you can make high quality graphics wherever you are, even on the beach. Historically, I'd have needed a number of platforms to create buttons for my blog, infographics for Instagram and artwork for print. But now I can do it all in one app, giving us a professional, cohesive look for all our online and offline presence. You can quickly create from a template, or if you prefer, like I do, you can create from scratch and include your brand colours and logos. The other big plus is you can save everything so that you can create some on-brand content in a matter of minutes. Time's very precious when you're wearing all the hats, running your own business, and I feel like this app has just given me the gift of an extra few hours a day. If you'd like to know more about our family business and our lives by the sea in Cornwall, then please do pop over and say hi on Instagram. We'd love to see you. We're at woodpaperscissors or on our website, woodpaperscissors.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you once more to Adobe, who have helped to make this podcast episode happen. If you want to find out more about Adobe Express and how it can help your business, head over to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Tell me, it was actually this sort of personal experience that became the seed of Neom. And there was this light bulb moment. I read that you started training as an aromatherapist and almost as what we now sort of call a side hustle, but we didn't have those terminologies at the time. Was that because you were like, I cannot be dealing with that Mariah Carey phone call anymore and I need something to make me better well you say light bulb moment it wasn't really a light bulb moment I'm always kind of quite keen to stipulate this because I always feel sorry for people when they think well if I've not had the moment then it's not going to happen and it wasn't a moment it was a sort of 
a crackling of fairy lights of different elements that, that led me to Neom. So one was I was really stressed out. So I think living this life, and nothing was wrong with it. It was brilliant fun. But obviously being 25 and the pressure working somewhere like mm. that, and I was constantly on a plane and constantly, because obviously LA works late into the evening, my day would start again at five o'clock. I started with awful anxiety and I remember my mum coming down and typical northerner, she's like, you're just doing too much. There's nothing wrong with you. You're doing too much. You can't do this. Like, your body's not a machine. You can't do this. For God's sake, look after yourself. You know, you need to see the light, go to a gym, move, eat proper food. It was nothing radical at all. And I was like, yeah, you can't live on pasta pesto for 10 years and never see the light and <laughs> work 15 hours. But it took me to, <laughs> I was 27 to kind of grasp that. And so I did do that. You know, it was a time when I remember like I booked in for a, a, a massage one weekend and decided I'd enroll in the gym and I'd go to the local crusty health food shop. And of course, there was no Fresh and Wilds back then. And, uh, and I just thought, yeah, I'm going to kind of sort of commit to this. I actually enrolled on a, a macrobiotic uh, nutrition course, which actually probably was a real pivotal time for me because macrobiotic nutrition is just really about great nutrient dense foods. And it made me think an awful lot about what I was putting on my body and in my body. And so I decided to train as a nutritionist. Simultaneously, I became very interested in aromatherapy. I loved the idea that I could create these little blends dependent on how I was feeling. Um, I sort of had this, this, you know, this big box and it was almost like my little apothecary. And however we were feeling, I would create blends for us. And my then boyfriend, you know, he had no energy, was playing sport on a weekend and then didn't have the time to go partying. How dare he, didn't have the energy to go partying. My flatmate was up and down. She was like, she had hormone fluctuation. I was just really stressed. My sister wasn't sleeping. I loved that I could create these blends to sort of help. And I was really sort of on this new semi-enlightened path mm. to, to looking after yourself. Of course, the word well-being wasn't a thing then. And so there became this interest in well-being. Again, it, it wasn't called that. My sister was working for Friends of the Earth at the time. She was only interested, would only use natural products in her body. It was an absolute staunch greenie. Literally, <laughs> heating doesn't go on. You know, she's wearing a Hessian sack. I remember she used to get the boat over to Spain because she wouldn't come on, <laughs> on a plane. She was right over there, yeah? And it was her birthday. Uh, just out of your fashion world, the, the Hessian sack, you must have, you must have rejoiced that that was your sister. I did think... <laughs> There's a market to glamorise what she's saying in some way. It was as simple as that. You know, I thought, God, yeah. everything she says makes sense. You know, everything I'm experiencing makes sense. Yeah, I'm going to work at Condé Nast. All these journalists who, funnily enough now, have sort of rebadged themselves as well-being journalists, but we're looking down their noses. Oh, Nicola, no one's interested in that. No one's interested in natural. This was the time of the cosmeceuticals. You know, and what I was saying and talking about my interests in well-being and stress and anxiety and naturals, it was just like laughed out of the, you know, of, of Vogue yeah. House. They just were like not into it. And I thought, this makes sense. And I, I don't know, I'm always a fan and I am now when I look back at business, I'm, I'm not a trend-led person at all, whether it's fashion, whether it's a brand, whether it's something I'm doing in my own life. I'm far more real than that. And so... I'm interested in newness, but, you know, if a colour's fashionable, it's no interest if it still looks shit on me. You know, if an idea is cool, but I think it's ridiculous, I'm not interested. Yes. I think 
and more so now, you know, I'm older. So I think I could see that this wasn't a trend. This was an evolution of life. People weren't suddenly going to hear this stuff and then go backwards. Ah, nah, don't worry about it. I won't deal with wellness yeah, anymore. Yeah, exactly. And it is, it is so interesting speaking to Rene from Planet Organic. And, yes. And absolutely, again, you know, what, the way that she approached it, you know, was everyone going to turn their back on the fact that what you put into your body is what you are. And she realised, no, people are going to get it. And then it's going to continue. And I yeah. remember I've been researching, as I said, I, in a good way, stalk you for this podcast. You're the best you had... researcher, Holly. You are the best. Thank you Why are you much. in the commercial team at Condé Nast? That's a real fail. They should have had oh, you well, on bless like... bless you because I am yeah. a dyslexic and could barely write a sentence. But, you, you should know... Have... That... You were so. You should have just done it by voice note. You should have been like, "Listen, we are a bit older. There was no such thing as voice note. Oh, we yeah. barely had a mobile phone then." So you started this sort of thought of this entrepreneurial stuff. Obviously, all was around your kitchen table, but then you had mm -hmm. a childhood family friend, Oliver Menel, and I loved the fact that you, as children, used to hatch these plans to start a business together one day. And I often talk about co-founders. I had co-founder at Not in the High Street, co-founders here at. And, co, and how important it is, the yin to the yang. And, you know, that was the two differences or those two sides of the coin, but making it work. And for anyone that doesn't already know this, would you share how you came up with the name of Neom? It's my initials and his initials, N-E-O-M. It's, I think it's a rubbish story. People like it. I'm like, it's rubbish. I love it. I was, we, I know, was we just were waiting born... for the mystical language of God knows where. I and, know. Do you know what I mean? Like, whatever. It's rubbish. But it's not. You know, I never make a thing but of it. But it sounds because, like it. It sounds cool. And uh, we had a holding company called that. And we were in the time, and again, I think this is quite an important point if people are thinking of starting businesses they always miss, is you've got to make sure that you can own your IP, right, in different territories. And so made-up names or something that, you know, is a little bit longer and a bit kooky, they're the ways you have to go. You can't call it nice wellbeing. Nice candles. Or something. Exactly. Yeah. You can't. So we were born in a time when it was really difficult for us to get those kind of domain names and, and own that IP. So, so yeah. That was it. That was it. And you were living in London at the time and you had this idea. You decided to quit the job and took that leap of faith and went for it. And so tell me how you got started in those early days, because definitely you pulled the pennies together, didn't you? Like you said, it was a side hustle. And again, couldn't imagine not doing it as a side hustle to start with. I mean, God, you'd have to be braver than me and I'm pretty brave because you need some sort of green light, I think, to jump mm. from a job. And I was in a job that, okay, it was becoming challenging, but I still liked it and it still paid the mortgage. So a side hustle, you know, initially I did it evenings, weekends. Then I dropped down to four days a week. And I wanted to understand that we were actually going to sell, that people resonated with this idea. Yeah. So I had a car that I'd got bought for my 21st. And by then, this car was worth £7,000. So that was pretty good. And so I had that. I didn't want to ask friends and family. I know that a lot of people do. That just wasn't... I just wanted to do it on my own. I think probably because I'm an entrepreneurial dad, I didn't want everyone to think, oh, my dad's helped her out. So... I, he had, of course, because he bought me the car for my birthday. But I sold that and Oliver had some cash as well. And so we put 15 
thousand into Neom. And uh, we put it sort of very crudely, the budget was split two thirds on product and the rest on a website, a functioning selling website. And there was a tiny bit in the pot. We had a rule that if we sold five candles, because the candles were in my second bedroom in my flat, that was our basically our warehouse. And the rule was if we sold more than five, we, I was allowed to expense a taxi to get me to work, of which then I would walk it to the post office. But if it was less, I had to go on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and either which way, I had to flirt with the postman at the other side to help me carry the five candles to the post office. How funny so is that? So ridiculous. I mean, it's... It... We have to remember back because this is 2005 and as you were saying, no one was talking about well-being. The industry was absolutely in its infancy. We didn't have social media. The landscape was basically incredibly different to where we are today. And I love talking to you because there's not many people that started, you know, we started not on the high street in 2005 around the kitchen I table. I remember. You started launched the same time it, as us. Yeah, in 2006. And so your brand was disruptive from the start. And the fact that it was producing 100% natural candles using only the purest of ingredients, which basically people didn't really look for at the time. How did you navigate that and let people know what you were doing is the USP and touching on the fact that it was a niche point. And I am the biggest fan of niche just generally. Like niche, I just think is fantastic. Yeah, but it's hard to convey to others. Yeah. And niche is not so great when you're needing to pay yourself, you know, to eat sometimes when you start up. There's niche and niche, isn't there? I just wrote something about this and I was like, you know, you've got to look at how big that demographic really is. And we get people who come to Neon for the well-being element, but we also get people that come for the natural. And then we also get people who come just because they love the smell of it. So I think you can be niche, but then you can also appeal to different markets mm. at the same time. And then, you know, it doesn't have to be totally polarising. But in answer to your question, we always wanted to start a beauty brand. And the reality was you couldn't afford it. MOQs, minimum order quantities, meant that we had to major on one thing. And I felt that there was the biggest overhaul of the candle market of all the other things that we had on our sort of board to, to launch. Candles were made of, and actually this figure hasn't changed dramatically, 97% of paraffin wax and scented with synthetic fragrances. It's a much easier, cheaper way to make a candle with synthetics. So just say that stat again. Well, when we launched, when we launched, it was 97% in UK and USA. So looking down the barrel of, you know, eventually launching in the USA, of candles that were made with paraffin wax and scented with... And what's paraffin wax? So paraffin wax is a crude oil derivative. So you're burning a crude oil and we have to be really careful. And we chose with Neom to say to people, this is the stats. This is what's in it. We believe that you as consumers should, with everything you're putting in your body, on your body, have a knowledge of turning a label around and understanding it. But I don't want to go out there and knock other brands and pick Mm -hmm. through other labels. That's not our role. We don't want to to, we don't want to probably be as provocative as that because there's some big pharma people in this game. Yeah. And I, but I do, and also 
I we come back to the evangelist point. Now, I'm not an evangelist myself, Holly. The reality mm. is, I wouldn't burn a paraffin wax candle in my living room, but I will sometimes put eye cream on on this yeah. little bit of eye that's got, for example, that's got you know ingredients in that I don't think are the best. I'll always try and eat organic meat, but that's really expensive, so I yeah. won't have that all the time. Like. I understand that we're trying to do our best and pick our way through this. So I think our message has always been to people, the vast majority of candles are made of paraffin wax. You need to understand, same with everything, that you've got to, why do you trust blindly anything that you put on your body? I remember in the 80s when I was growing up, there was the E102 scandal in the food market and my mum suddenly went from feeding us microwavable meals all the time, not just for convenience, because that was the middle-class thing. Yeah. That was the good thing to do. So suddenly all these women were sort of turning around these packets in supermarkets and thinking, my God, what the hell's in these? I've always been surprised that it took that long for us to look at beauty products in yeah. the same way and have that yeah. level of understanding because yeah. we're now really quite educated where food's concerned. I mean, God, yeah. there's a hell of a long way to go, but the dial has moved should I say, quite a lot where the food market is concerned. But we've still got to take that responsibility, haven't we, ourselves? Exactly. And so I sort of made the decision to say, to not make people feel worse, to not fight that fight, but actually to fight the fight of saying to people, guys, A, just educate yourself. B, be confident with your own choices. C, if you can move in a direction where you're doing that little bit better for yourself, by the way, whatever that looks, then that's cool for you because... Again, I don't think perfection exists and we're all trying our best. So with Neon, we major very much on how we can help as opposed to probably as pointing out all the things that Others. I disagree with. Uh, in other, yeah. and, and it's such a great explanation because, yeah, I'm going to really rethink a few things actually since what you've just said. I know you were going around talking to people about carrot that's got pesticides in it and an organic one because basically people just didn't get this natural versus organic and in those early years um we do sort of gloss over don't we now all the setbacks and especially when you're breaking new grounds and actually sometimes it's so long ago you can't quite remember or you're so fatigued Mm. by the even thought of what you did And I was speaking to Marisa from Missima a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about this sort of overnight success that took a decade to build and how basically she was debunking the myths. Did you have any doubts and uh, how did you cope with them? Because I know that John Lewis turned you down for seven years. Oh, I mean, Holly, I I read about you that you said... (laughs) (laughs) you said it was like climbing at Mount Everest. And that made me laugh because I've always said internally, it it was like climbing at Mount Everest in flip-flops. I mean, that's... flip-flops. Well done, that is. (laughs) You raised me some frostbitten toes, do you? That's what you raised me. (laughs) Because I, I think it wasn't just as hard as you said, but I was that unprepared. I mean, I literally was that dickhead who just was like, oh, yeah, not only can I walk up Mount Everest, but I'll do it in (laughs) flip-flops. It was like so unprepared. I knew nothing. I was, it took way longer than we thought. I was so far in. I think the reason I didn't give up was because I was so far in and it took so long 
that I couldn't then go back. Yeah. And I was stuck then because it was like, You couldn't now, unpick it. Yeah. And by the way, now I've got kids and we can barely afford the food shop. So we've gone backwards in life by a country mile. So those years were foul. <laughs> and, and, you know, everyone else around you is kind of looking at you going, oh, are you trying to be the new Molten Brown? And you're like, oh, my God. You know, almost sort of laughing through gritted teeth at you, like, oh, yeah. how cute. I don't know if you remember that, but that was like, Oh, yes. Ugh! So yes. patronising people everywhere. We used to be, be, we used to, I think I've mentioned this before in this podcast, we were about maybe five years or four years into the business and we were in a meeting and, and someone spoke to us in a way that basically you realised that they, he thought that we were working in our back bedrooms. Yeah. And I just didn't understand when we were talking about the numbers that we were talking about and we were doing the things that we were doing why he didn't think we had an office but he just literally assumed that we were in our in our back bedrooms and and it was it was a different time wasn't it the word entrepreneur i remember wasn't yeah. even a word or it, it was a really different sort of moment yeah and look you know when you look back you you have to say no regrets don't you because how can you say like a jenga board if you took out those two shitty years or yes. moments or whatever, that it, it would have all fit together. It wouldn't. So you just can't think like that. And I think one of the greatest skills that you can have, and luckily I would definitely say in amongst the bag of semi-skills that I've got, is grit. And I suppose that time, may, you had to be. You just had to be. Mm. Um, go back to the Condé Nast years where you were sat on the floor. You, you just had to be. And so I do now sometimes worry that in this slightly more pampered environment that we are raising children, bringing them into, I'm not, that's not negating the harshness as well. But I do worry how you tread very carefully between giving your children, I always look at this through the eyes of my own kids now, enough grit and reality whilst also looking out for obviously all the things that now are a concern, their mental health and their social media yeah. sort of uh, implications. So that's hard. And I suppose it's only when you can look back as an adult and go, oh, yeah, my mum drops us off, ha, 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 at the stables at five and we didn't die. And But would we do that now? I mean, of course you wouldn't with your own children. So you're constantly, aren't you, trying to think, we, you recognise the importance of that grit but you also you want to sort of build in those buffers for yes. a better world for your employees and, and your children. And it's hard, really, really and, hard to do and that. And what about, how did you deal with those knockbacks, such as the John Lewis's knocking you back for seven years? Did well, you always I don't feel... think I had any choice. And I, I do now wonder, had I have had someone to help me out in those early years or a rich parent to drop some cash or a rich husband or something like that, would I have done it? Maybe not, because... I had to had no choice. I was six, seven years in by then. I was earning less than I was in magazines. Where was I going to go? I couldn't. I remember my grandma, who very helpfully, who was about ninety two, was like, "Oh, maybe you should go back to magazines and say you're, you're sorry." I, was like, <laughs> I don't think I can do that. <laughs> um, so it's just yeah. What were just, you sorry for? That's another one for wine. Well, you know, yeah, that's my grandma. Know, but all you that know, stuff, it yeah. was just yeah, exactly. It's, Can it's, I rewind? But the 
it's also the thing that when you were saying about grit and that rejection and, and all of those sorts of things. And I used to have a box at Not on the High Street where I would beg these um, businesses, small businesses to come onto the site. And sometimes, you know, it would be three years of continual oh, phone yeah. calls, by the way. And these yeah. poor people were basically saying, listen, <laughs> back off, Holly, just back right off. And after about two <laughs> years, I got the message. So the only way that I could cope is I had a shoebox at the top of a thing and I just wrote you'll be sorry and I would take the piece of paper with all of the notes do you remember that like all the notes that you would write because there was no CMS or anything and I put it in this box and that helped me get over it they'll be sorry one day they will be sorry did you feel that when John Lewis and people are rejecting you you're like one day yeah there was this one buyer and I he was awful and luckily they move around quite a bit John Lewis now we've got lovely buyers I'm not tiring them with this brush anymore to be clear but there was this awful buyer and I sort of heard on the grapevine that he knew someone that I knew and I didn't really like this girl and I thought maybe it's that so maybe there was something insidious in it maybe yeah. there wasn't but I remember him saying to me I just don't like your brand no I said okay <laughs> why and he had. He said, "I said no, and don't you ring me again." And I remember thinking, "Well, now we're like with the biggest seller in our department." And I always think of that guy, and I'm like, "I." W-. He left. He's left the industry, but he knows who he is. And I would love. I mean, look, it's hard, right? Because then you, you get bugged, as I do every day, from people. Hi, can I do this? Can I do so and so? And I'm sure I don't give people as much time and appreciation because I'm really busy as I would have wanted in that position. So you've got, I also understand everyone's position. I and agree, but I'm place. not being funny but if you don't say I will. His name should be in the you'll be sorry box. And he is, because you're now, <laughs> as you said, this is just amazing. There were obviously during these times challenges, but there were also these sort of green shoots that were materialising. And you started to have celebrities endorsing your product and people like Kylie Minogue and Kate Moss and the Duchess of Cambridge at the time was a turning point. Yes. Did that really help you? And did you understand the power of celebrity, obviously from your past? Obviously had understood celebrity from my days at Glamour. It's actually now, I don't think it's such a thing. Mm -hmm. And now I'd much rather have a testimonial from a real woman. But now we've got the ability to push that testimonial out and let that go viral. Or we can find an influencer who, you know, who fits with you, who sort of feels like people, you know, see that she's living, she's juggling her life with her children and her career or something. So you can find those people who are a better fit. But celebrities then were the only way that you could almost get that sort of badge of approval. And I, yes. and I did understand that. I tell you what was the best for us of all the celebrities was that Kylie Minogue had just recovered from breast cancer and so she was really interested and had spoken about using kind of more natural products. And she had asked to use some of our uplifting candles before she went on stage. And that was a brilliant bit of press because it not only showed, you know, Kylie likes our stuff, but it showed the context of which Kylie was using it. And yes. actually, I think that's been the way that I've always sort of worked with, whether it was an influencer or a celebrity or anyone, is it's lovely if, I don't know, Anne-Marie walks out with a, with a, with a bag of neon and a cool person, you know, is giving you that sort of tick. But it's way more impressive if you could get even a lesser celebrity or a real person talking about... The context of it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 
And that's great news for small businesses and founders to hear that because we've gone past that age where only a few brands really could participate because of X, Y, and Z and getting yourself out there and getting seen by celebrities. So you're now sitting at this cult level, you know, have amazing (laughs) skincare, body washes, essential oil blends, and you are stocked in Harrods, Selfridges, Space NK, Liberty, and of course, John Lewis. And I can imagine this is a bit of a moment. I'd love to now talk to you about, so wholesale and online was going strength to strength, but in recent years, and I, this is fascinating, you've also opened up what you're calling well-being hubs and these sort of beautiful physical spaces. And I, I do bang on a bit about small businesses and this community opening up retail and retail theatre and breathing the fact that it breathes life, real life into a brand because it's Mm. actually in real life. And Mm. I saw one of your posts on Instagram about your new store in Edinburgh opening up and and you said, it's like you said, we're having a new baby and (laughs) It reminds me of like many people and and, uh, counterparts such as Chrissy Rucker, white company, saying she still goes into shops and rearranges things, you know, rearranges candles and things like that. Is is that still important in terms of being that hands-on? Seeing it coming to life on the high street, you must feel that the high street has got its place in our communities still. Yeah, so I think people talk about experiential and we were having this conversation only yesterday with my retail trainer and I said, when people talk about experiential, it's annoying to me how they try and think of some gimmicky thing that sort of Mm. lies alongside the brand. That's kind of what it's become. Yeah. Exactly. Experiential, yeah, like some gamification thing, like you know, or a picture. Why experiential should be your brand being experienced? The story Mm. of the brand, how you touch and feel it, what it does, how it's going to help you, painting the picture of how that works in your life, and getting that across is really, really crucial. And I always used to say, you know, for twenty minutes with me, a new starter or a buyer or whatever gets neon they get that we're about well-being they get that our customer is as we've said today is not you know that total evangelist but she's somewhere in the middle we get the four pillars they get how they use it they get the routines they get how that they will build something that's personalized to them that's not something that I can get across no matter how fabulous my relationship is with a department store on a back wall. I just can't. Mm. And it's also really, really hard unless, you know, someone's prepared to engage enough time. So stores are the best place where people can experience the Neom story. And so, yes, it's expensive doing stores. And yes, there's always that question, oh God, what else can you do with that money? I think that's going to be the $64,000 question forever. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I certainly wouldn't advocate personally, although there's many ways to skin the cat, opening a store until you can really afford that because, yeah, they're really expensive. And learning retail is another skill in itself. But an environment where I can do fantastic windows, people can come in, we do our scent discovery tests, they can find out what their underlying well-being need is, we can build them this bespoke toolkit uh, of, of, of something to absorb and something to inhale and something to boost their well-being. You know, a place where all my, I call them neonologists in stores, give people extra advice outside of neon. Because I think if people come in for 
real well-being needs. It's only right and fair that we also say, hey, do you know what? If you're really struggling with sleep, there's this brilliant book. Or do you know what? If you really are struggling with mood, have you checked your need vitamin B levels? We give them something mm. extra. A bit like you'd expect if you're going into a store to style that beautiful coat that you've got. And someone might go, do you know what? That'd mm. actually look really cool with a gold necklace or something. I always think that's experiential. It's just, it's just yeah really the, rich good stuff not yeah. gimmicky the, the classic yeah right? the classic yeah and that can only be done in store absolutely I couldn't agree more and it's the human connection as well isn't it we actually don't need technology if you've got an amazing human <laughs> definitely it's, it's a, just for anyone wondering why I'm wearing a coat my heating in my office is broken <laughs> so I'm having to do this podcast record in my coat which reminds me to the gritty old days of Notton High Street when we could only have the heating on in the mornings because we couldn't afford the bills. That's like my taxi story, isn't it? Yeah, where we yeah. would have the heatings on the morning, just, you know, get rid of the frozen air. Yeah. And then we would put our coats on for the rest of the day. Can I ask, we're coming towards the end of this podcast, and I wanted to ask that you obviously are fully in in this business. I can feel it. I can feel the passion. You've just had another baby in Edinburgh with this new store. You, you've been around as long as I have in business. And I know what war scars we bear and what we've gone through in order to get to this place. Tell me about how you've coped with your own well-being and being a woman in business and a mother, because it's seriously, I mean, I'm not leading you. You might say, Holly, it's been a freaking walk in the park. But <laughs> no, do, I won't say I, that, Holly. I, I, I if won't you do, say that. I'm going to stop the podcast. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but tell me what that really has been like. Because, you know, a lot of people are listening now. Majority of female might have a business, might be dreaming about a business. But there, there's just, I, I always like to tell the truth about these things. Well, it's been bloody awful in many respects. So that's the reality. But it's been bloody amazing in other respects. So I think in life you choose your hard, right? There is no easy. You choose your own version of hard. And this version of hard was right for me because I know what my kind of values and drivers are. And I needed to get out of the northern town and I needed to think big and I have to grow and push on and so it wouldn't have suited me being at home but I also have friends that stay at home and I know that they've also got hard that they struggle with lots of other issues so I think unfortunately as women there is no perfect answer and then by the way there's those in the middle who go well I'll just do it a few hours a day and I I hazard a guess it's hardest of all for them because they then feel that they, you know, can't do a good job on either level. I think it's attitude. I think you have to think, you know, 70% is fine in life. I think you have to drop loads of balls and be fine with that. I think you've got to give yourself a break. I think you have to see that life is a journey. It's not meant to be good all the time. It's meant to be good and then lovely and then amazing and then absolutely hideous and then a bit shit and then a bit boring. Like, all the things are the things. And so, you know, I think we don't realize, we don't sort of recognize that as much as we probably should. And it's sort of a basic thing. But I don't think it's been easy for anyone in any direction that any woman I've known has chosen. So, yeah, I'd say choose your hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've never heard that. That is just an amazing thing for us to remember. And potentially, and I know I speak on behalf of myself, one of the things you do as an entrepreneur is you need to create new for yourself as well, because you need to create new in your business to keep you stimulated. And I read that you're on such a sustainability crusade as well. And um, we've just become a B Corp. I know you've got a pending B Corp application and that you want to become climate positive and zero waste by 2025. Is that a new era that you're putting into the business? No, it's not. Obviously, you've always been sustainable, but actually having these goals now where our customers are on the journey with us as well. Yes and no. I mean, I think it's great now that there is a really rigorous standard for businesses that everyone can trust because, you know, we come back to that natural, not natural, how the hell do you work your way around a label these days? It's hard. So I think this is a really, really great thing that, you know, you know that you can buy businesses that have a B Corp attached to them and and feel that that's a stamp of, you know, really, yeah. really high accolade if that's if that's what you're looking for. So so I think that's great. And that's been a really, really hard job for us to to do that. Not because it hadn't been built in since day one, it had, but you know, you know what it's like. It's just admin hell. So so that's been really, really difficult. I so I don't know. I think that was probably, to be honest, great to get that, well, pending, but really that's kind of that's something that's always been part of our business. And so the admin side of just filling that form scenario probably not been the best, not not been the most um, enriching experience for me, Holly. But I do get your point, absolutely. And I, I quite often go through ebbs and flows of the business, if I'm really honest with everyone, you know. I go through times where I'm like on fire and I'm loving it and stuff. And then and then less so. And it's always difficult with your own business as well that, you know, the sign of it going really well is it doesn't need you as much. But then you're... A, but, oh, you know, you don't need me. You know, you're needy back to it. It's like a kind of funny thing. Let me just go and blow up a few things and then you'll need me. <laughs> yeah, they can see me walking in. They're like, don't show her. Don't show her. Don't ask her. Um, but that's, that, that's true. That's definitely true. So when you think about the future of Neom, what's your vision? What's the crystal ball saying? I think we can do, I think we can do a lot more than what we're doing. And also, we've only just started Cracking America, which has been tough so far. And just telling your story and, and all the mm. the nuances and the changes, you know, as everyone knows, going to America. Um, and we've got a big, rich story here. I think sometimes you've got to tighten that up when you go to other territories because a lot of people know Neom or they've got friends who know Neom or, you know, we can tell all these different elements of the brand and, and, and that's only additive. Whereas in another territory, it's about stripping it right back, just telling, you know, a, yes. a very small story so people can understand it, you know, in the first instance. So that's been, that's been challenging. And I'm, my children are now a little bit older. So I feel going to New York a couple of times, going to LA a couple of times a year, that's, that's something that I'm quite up for. Two, three years ago, I was like, nah, I can't, do, I can't do this. So that's an interesting new element for me is definitely doing outside of the UK. When we've got a really great senior team now, I love working with brilliant people. So 
you know, new teams bring new ideas, bring new approaches. That is new for you as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll open some more stores and bring out new products. And I like doing the thought leadership stuff. So, you know, we launched a magazine last year, working on books, my own podcast, which I need to get going again, which you, you definitely need to come on. Oh, I would love to. It's called the No BS Guide to Wellbeing. To well-being. And yeah. that is just, uh, and the magazine as well. Yeah, and the magazine, you know, we just do like a kind of quarterly magazine. But I think, again, I feel quite a responsibility that we talk about well-being and then we don't just say that any one thing, including Neom, is silver bullet. You know, it's not, yes. it's not, it does frustrate me when handbags or duvet brands try and get in on the well-being just because it's a trend. It Because it's not responsible. Like we're dealing, with, we have women aren't come in our stores in tears because they're not sleeping well because of X or, you know, in tears that they're stressed because of why. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I feel that it's really important for me to make sure that we also give them loads, every other bit of hint and tip and advice that we know, we let them know, whether it's yeah. supplements or whether it's books we've read or whatever it is, we're constantly feeding that through. So that's a really big passion of mine. And I suppose really harps back to my journalism roots as well. Hopefully yes. I've got a yes. good eye for what's an interesting full, piece full of information. Circle. Full circle there. It has just been blinking glorious to talk to you. I can't tell you. It's just, it feels like a a kindred spirit from a a certain era of starting a business (laughs) and then, and then just keep on trucking the whole way through. I end these um, (laughs) podcasts by um, using the analogy that running our businesses and doing this thing that we do is like being on a crazy roller coaster. I'd like to ask you if you had to pick a moment that was um, the low when your cart was at the bottom of the roller coaster, what would that have been? 2008 financial crisis, banks calling calling in their loans. Yeah, I was in tears a lot then. (laughs) My, that must have been hellish and sympathising for bus, businesses yeah. today where lots of these totally. sorts of things are going on. How Never, did you get through that? Well, we lived on rice cakes, basically, but it was a lesson. You never, ever, ever trust anyone else. Never, you know? And if you've got a loan or, or whatever, you've kind of given the keys someone access and uh, you've got to know that. So... I've always been, it's definitely sharpened my antennae on who you trust. Um, yes. Be careful who you trust to let into your business. There are people to be trusted, but be very they're careful. They're few. They're few. I they're say, few. Yeah. Um, and conversely, your greatest high, I mean, your cart would be smelling gorgeous and all these candles would be everywhere and, the, you know, go past you and you'd have this smell, wouldn't you? <laughs> It would be just the best roller coaster cart. Tell me what your greatest high would be. Oh, my greatest high. Oh, it's always the little things, you know? Like, uh, my daughter has got a love hate relationship with it, you know, that people will say to her, Does your mum own Neon? So that's quite sweet now. Um, or, you know, a store opening is always is always a moment of joy. And I suppose it's not just the store, but it's the evolution. I think my greatest highs, honestly, are when bits of work come in and they're better than I thought. I know that sounds really, really ridiculous, but, yeah. you know, I might brief something out for Christmas and then the PD team bring it and it's better than you thought. You're like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. They're, they're the moments that give me the real buzz, if I'm honest with you, as opposed to like winning an award or something. It's always those yeah. things where you could kind of see a glimpse of the future that's, 
better and more exciting. That's what kind of keeps you going, I think. Yeah. Um, and through other people's eyes, they, they, they're seeing yeah. it and taking it on and you could never have done that. And then suddenly it's sort of evolving. It's, yeah, I can absolutely appreciate that being such a beautiful high. Nicola, this is just incredible, but it is that moment of the podcast where I'm going to ask you to read your letter to your younger self, which I know you've prepared. And I um, just want to thank you so much for being um, truly honest and open with us today. And I know it's going to help so many people. Oh, well, thank you very much. I mean, I love everything that you do. You're definitely coming on my podcast and my Instagram live <laughs> and my Facebook and everything. <laughs> You know, I really, I'm really passionate. Well, I'm really passionate about what you do because I think everyone has a business in them. There's this old school notion still of business being about people who want to work 16 hour days, wear a navy blue suit, and are always on a spreadsheet. And bursting outside of that notion are not that many people showing how it can be done. And, you know, you might want to run a business that works around the kids' school hours. You might run a one, want to run a business that just takes a, a passion to the next level. And, and I think it's been the greatest source of joy for me and independence. And so for women particularly, for everyone, but for women particularly, I always feel quite impassioned that they learn that business can be the most rewarding part of your oh. life made a friend here today right holly i'll read you this letter and then i want dates from you for wine <laughs> to my 12 year old self this is you are 12 years old and growing up in the 80s in a small yorkshire town your larger than life entrepreneurial dad is doing well sec selling secondhand cars and your mum is happily doing what all wives of successful men in the north do lunching looking pretty and caring for her home and family it's actually a really happy time. And as with all children, this is your only worldview at the moment. So you think this is perfection. This is the goal. But what you need to know is there's not just one version of good in life. There's not just one goal. Lovely as this life is, it's not your destiny. You need and will escape Yorkshire and see other ways of living life. You'll build up a toolkit of elements of life that make sense and serve you not collect the same few elements that serve the women in your small town. Unfortunately, a fancy car, a big diamond ring and a wardrobe of designer clothes just won't be enough for you. That's never going to make you happy. And anyway, you'd rather buy your own diamonds. Your career will be such an important part of who you become. Your dad is right when he says the top 10% of any industry in the world are millionaires. So simply find the thing you love and do it brilliantly. That way you're going to have fun and you're going to make money. In your case, you're probably quite lucky that you're only good at art and English, to be honest, as you don't have much choice in what you do. You've been the naughty child at home and in school since you were tiny, always in the headmistress's office or causing some terrible calamity at home. But you're not really naughty as much as you just question absolutely everything and you test the boundaries all the time. Normal is boring for you and you've developed a strong sense of what makes you and what works for you. You're just not a conformist and you never will be. I'll be honest, this will prove hard over and over again in so many settings, but it's who you are. Don't try and minimise yourself to fit in and don't lose the spark that makes you you. You have to think big. It's your truth and you're just not going to be happy any other way. Life is about chapters. Don't fetishise comfort so much you reject change. Keep changing. 
Allow yourself to grow, to evolve and experience new things, places, people, careers. You owe it to yourself to do all the things you've dreamed, not just to find yourself, but to create yourself. You'll have at least two careers in journalism and in business. One won't be enough. Maybe there'll be three or four. Why not? Keep your circle small. You're going to make some great friends, but your gregarious personality and future success will make you a magnet for many hangers-on too. And you're not the best judge of character. You're too positive and you need to remember if it looks like shit, smells like shit, it probably is shit. Those lectures from your dad that start, Nicola, attitude is everything. He's right. Get your mindset in the right place and everything else follows. Don't diminish your mother. She might not have been brought up in a society that encouraged the career path you admire, but her EQ is higher than anyone you know and she will have your back like no other and my God, you will need that. Oh, and also, be aware that what goes around comes around. Maybe one day you'll have your own daughter who's a challenge and a half whilst your mum stands on with a wry smile. Party hard, but maybe not quite as hard as you have planned. Keep riding horses. It's always been your solace. Be healthy. Look after your mind and body. It's the only place you have to live. And you will learn, I'm afraid, that you just can't pour from an empty cup. Always remember, life is full of ups and downs. It can't be happy all the time. That's just the way it goes. Everything is hard before it's easy. And you're going to experience the full spectrum, the highs, the lows, and all the in-betweens. So embrace it all. And remember, life is really a journey, not a destination. You're sincerely your 44-year-old self. I see why you're good at English. I mean, it is absolutely bloody brilliant. Oh, I loved God. it. Oh, I good. just, so many things I empathised with and I think so many people that are listening empathise with because it gets to a stage sometimes in us women that we don't say it. We don't talk about the hangers-on or people that aren't good for you or releasing them or, as you said, just all small group of people, all these sorts of things. And I think it's just so beautiful that you shared that with us in such an emotional and (laughs) funny. I didn't cry, though. You said, in your email, you said, sometimes people cry. I was like, shit. <laughs> I just, it's more we just put that, just in case you think it's going to get emotional. It's brilliant. And you know what? This is a brand that I know so many people will be listening and know your brand. And isn't that just an amazing thing that you created something that now is in the psyche of so many people and that you're still going and you're going to keep climbing Everest and you've probably learned not to wear flip-flops. You've probably got some walking <laughs> boots on now. I've invested in some walking boots. In walking, and they're there probably not even good-looking walking boots. Do you know what I mean? Like You've even <laughs> knew not to try and look good in walking boots, but you're fine with it. As long as your remaining yeah. toes remain intact... Mm. Then you can do it. I am middle-aged, practical and happy (laughs) to be that. (laughs) It's all good. I can't wait for us to climb our mountains and still keep in contact. Thank you so much for today and best of luck. You take care. Before you go, don't forget to head to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker to find out how Adobe Express can fuel creativity in your business. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. 
And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 